Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and here in the United States, we have a pretty big red letter day coming up. It doesn't involve costumes or candles or cake, though it does involve giving gifts to the IRS. We're talking about tax day, which is heading our way on April 15th. And so on today's show, we're going to explore the ever so apropos topic of debt. Debt definitely affects my life. Debt grows with age, I think, you know. 20000 it's, uh, it's an annoying expense. My biggest debt is that I help my daughter get through college, and you know, you realize that you're the one that's in debt instead of your child. Even when you're thinking about retirement, you don't know the debt until you retire. Debt, as these Washingtonians suggest, can be an inevitable part of life. So over the next hour, we'll hear about all sorts of debt. From college loans. You're going to be paying these loans for the rest of your life. Do you understand that? To home mortgages. I don't know how to say that, that the sentence is, um, we left behind on the payments. We'll also hear about debts of a more personal nature. If I had shot the boy, I would have never been happy with myself. But to start things off today... Metro Connection is a Washington-based radio show, right? And given our location and our theme this week, it's pretty hard for us to get too far without mentioning the S word. The sequester. The sequester. Sequester. The sequester. The sequester. That's right. The sequester has been all over the news lately. It's basically the government's attempt to deal with the national debt, which, by the way, skyrocketed when the recession kicked in. Today, the national debt stands at nearly $17 trillion. So we've got the sequester, these across-the-board government agency spending cuts totaling $1.2 trillion over 10 years. This first year, the cuts are about $85 billion. And back in February, President Obama warned that if these cuts went into effect... The result could be a huge blow to middle-class families and our economy as a whole. Well, as of March 1st, the cuts did indeed begin. And granted, many agencies and people are feeling it. But some experts say the sequester's impact isn't quite as noticeable to the average citizen as had been predicted. So I recently headed to George Mason University. I'm looking for Office 642, 649, 648. To visit one of those experts. Rebecca, hi. Good, Good to, to see you. Good to meet you. Should we sit at the table here? Sure, that would be great. Okay. A guy by the name of Stephen Fuller. I am a professor of public policy and director of the Center for Regional Analysis at George Mason University. Fuller produced a report last year saying the sequester would result in more than 2 million lost jobs by the end of 2013. Then last month, he reduced the number of lost jobs to about 1.5 million. And one of the reasons for the decrease, he says, is because, as he puts it, a little more rationality crept into Congress. They've allowed agencies more flexibility in how they accommodate this. And so the consequences of it are being moderated slightly because of agency management. They're not layoffs. They're going to be some... some um, Like furloughs, things furloughs. like that? There we go. Okay. So we're not firing federal workers. It's interesting that we have about 45,000 fewer federal jobs in the United States today than we did a year ago. So the federal workforce is getting smaller. In the Washington area, it's down about 9,000 jobs. Now, it's a very small percentage based on, in Washington, we have 375,000 federal workers, so it isn't like they're all going away. But they are slowly going away, and they're going away in an interesting way, through retirements. So does that mean, then, the agencies aren't backfilling those jobs? Most agencies are facing a, a hiring freeze. And so slowly, through attrition, 
the federal agencies have built up some money in the bank. They haven't been paying as much payroll this year as they thought. And so now they're told to cut back their payroll, and they already have. So some agencies, in fact, aren't doing furloughs and not doing layoffs. Okay, but despite all of this, uh, sequestration is still very real, right? I mean, the cuts are happening. Uh, The Department of Defense is feeling it, federal contract workers. I think it's important not to diminish the impacts that this will have on the federal workforce. They're going to feel this, the federal contractor base in the Washington area, there's probably 500,000 federal contract workers. They're feeling it. This creates great anxiety, uncertainty. It affects their spending patterns. We're all feeling it to an extent. It's just like when unemployment goes up because of a recession. Even if you're not threatened with unemployment, you're a little more cautious with your spending. And so the reality of the sequester, even though it may not be as burdensome as had been advertised, and we won't see many of the results until next year, Next year, you will be able to look back and say, we lost jobs because of spending reductions last year. And in 2015, we'll look back and we'll be able to say, we lost jobs because of spending reductions in 2014. It's going to have an impact here. The outcome, however, will be positive for the economy. Once we get through this, almost like a hangover, that you had a really good party, and now, now we're suffering, and we'll learn some lessons. The private sector will be much stronger. The economy is growing. That's really quite the interesting outcome, I think. A learning lesson here is that we added 41,000 jobs in the Washington area in January compared to a year ago, and none of them were federal, and none of them were federal contractors. And so there's part of an economy here that isn't federal, and it's actually performing pretty well. And this is probably a pretty good message for the future that the economy needs to diversify. We still have this federal base. It's a really good base. It's well-paid and productive. And our economy will be a better economy, more opportunities, more different kinds of job types, and um, probably more sustainable and balanced as we move forward. And so the next recession that comes through here, we'll have a better balance or the next federal cutback. We've been through this before, and we've always survived. Well, Stephen Fuller, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Stephen Fuller directs the Center for Regional Analysis at George Mason University. And we want to know, how has the sequester been affecting you? Send us an email. Our address is metro at wamu.org. So, yeah, it's true. Our national debt numbers in the trillions. But you don't have to owe trillions of dollars to feel like you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Just ask Amy Letiri. Letiri's halfway through her clinical psychology Ph.D. program at Gallaudet University. She considers herself a pretty smart person, but when it came to paying for her education, well, she's pretty upfront about the fact that she made some mistakes, mistakes that led to some pretty major debt. Emily Berman brings us her story. Amy Letiri was the first person in her family to apply to college. My whole family was like, you are too smart. You can't stay here. You can't do this. Like, you are going to go to college. When she found herself with a stack of rejection letters and not a single acceptance, she didn't really know what to do. My school was like, here's some things that you can do. And one of those things was 
like a handful of programs in England. Doing her first semester in Europe sounded pretty great to Amy, so she enrolled at the University of East Anglia, which would actually be cheaper than a public college here in the U.S. The only hitch was that she couldn't use federal loans to pay for college abroad. We just thought, well, whatever, that's fine. So my mom took out like a private student loan thinking that it would be the same. And it's not. It's definitely not. The loan was for $18,000 with a variable interest rate, quite different from the fixed rate loans the government offers. After just a few months, Amy and her mom realized this loan was going to be a problem. Oh, wow. This was probably not the best idea we had. Amy came home and applied again to colleges in the States. She decided on Baylor University, a private school in Waco, Texas, with a program in American Sign Language. It was just what she wanted. But she says it wasn't what she needed. If I had had somebody to sit down and say, like, why are you going to Baylor instead of going to, you know, SUNY Oswego, who also has a ASL program, I wouldn't have been able to give them a good answer. So what that actually means is that I spent probably another $20,000 a year for no good reason. Now she's midway through her Ph.D. and certainly wiser than before. But it hasn't made paying for grad school any easier. Gallaudet covers some of her tuition, and to pay the rest, Amy has two part-time jobs on top of a full course load. This year, she took out $20,000 in federal loans to pay down a chunk of her private loan. I am probably going to still be thinking about my student loans when I have kids and have to start thinking about planning their college. It's stories like Amy's that prompted the federal government to make a change so that future Amy's won't have it quite as bad. The change is a newly enacted law called pay as you earn. Anybody going forward, so essentially new borrowers, a few recent borrowers, not a whole cohort of recent borrowers, are eligible to use this program if they have federal student loans. Jason Delisle is the president of the Federal Education Budget Project at the New America Foundation, a think tank in D.C., Paying in accordance with your income, he says, is a concept that's been around for a few years, but really ramped up at the end of 2012. Under this program, undergraduates can borrow around $6,000 a year, and graduate students can take out loans for the entire cost of school and living expenses. You make payments based on your adjusted gross income. It's your income after you take various deductions. So it's 10% of your adjusted gross income after you get an exemption for uh, what we call uh, cost of living. After you graduate, you pay 10% of your adjusted gross income every month. There is no interest rate. Then once you hit 10 years, if you're in nonprofit, if you're a nonprofit or a government, then you're done. And if you're working for in the for-profit sector after 20 years, you're done. After you hit that 10 or 20-year mark, the rest of your debt is forgiven. The program has been available since the very end of December, and already students are jumping on board. Roman McConan is the school social worker at Mari Elementary on Capitol Hill and is using the pay-as-you-earn program to pay off her past loans. She earned her master's degree in social work at Howard, and that, on top of about 40000 in undergrad federal loans, left her owing $100,000 to Uncle Sam. I consider it like a, like a, a limb, like it's just always going to be with me. I'm going to be paying them for the rest of my life. A friend sent her an email about the program, and she looked into it. She was approved and, for the first time since finishing school, felt a bit of relief. I was excited that it'd be 10 years, not 30. <laughs> And it was nice to see that there's like a light at the end of the tunnel. She will be paying that bill for 120 months straight. No breaks. 
my payments would be $450 a month. And it's that's really difficult, mainly because of rent in this area is kind of insanely expensive. So $450 is such a huge chunk. If she stays at her current salary in the low 60s for the next 10 years, that would mean she'd pay about $55,000 and have $45,000 forgiven. Of course, she'll probably get a more lucrative job at some point in the next decade, and her monthly bill will go up. But her total payment will likely be a whole lot less than $100,000. Jason Delisle says, sure, it's a good deal for people like Roman McConan, but it also puts the taxpayer at a big risk. You've got the incentives going in, in, in pretty bad directions, at least for for students and schools where they can just borrow away and, and raise tuition away, and, and the only person who ends up bearing the cost is essentially the taxpayer. Delisle recommends putting limits on how much grad students can borrow and pushing more subsidies to undergrads. Roman McConan sees it differently. A master's is required for a lot of public service jobs, she points out, and pay-as-you-earn makes it easier to work in the lower-paying jobs in the public sector and get out of debt. Until it's forgiven, it's still all in your name. It's still on your credit report. So, I mean, it's not still not fun to see that number. (laughs) The program is helpful, she says, but certainly doesn't feel like a free ride. I'm Emily Berman. This story came to us through WAMU's Public Insight Network, or PIN. It's a way for people to share their stories with us and for us to reach out for input on topics we're covering. You can learn more about the network by visiting metroconnection.org PIN. And we're curious, do you have a child who's figuring out where to go to college? If so, how much is price factoring into your school selection? You can reach us by sending an email to metro at wamu.org. Time for a break, but when we get back, what happens to high school dropouts in the decades after they leave school? I used to say, Lord, find me a school for people that's on my level. We'll bring you the first in a new five-part series on yesterday's dropouts. That and more in just a minute on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson, in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Now that tax time is upon us, this week we're talking about debt. We just talked about college debt, and in just a bit, we'll look at housing debt and hear why mortgage scams are on the rise. First, though, you might remember a series we ran last year about the dropout crisis in the district's public schools. Well, this year we've decided to explore what happens to students who drop out after they leave school. In the first of our new five-part series, Yesterday's Dropouts, special correspondent Kavitha Cardosa introduces us to two school dropouts whose struggles with basic reading and math have continued to ripple through their lives. Shirley Ashley flips through a folder of certificates she's received in her adult education class. She points to the words, I know that's Shirley Ashley. I don't know what that's for. She stops at one that says, Top Performer. I know this is top something. That means I'm doing good. 
The word performer is still a jumble of letters that Ashley, at 55, hasn't learned to decipher yet. Her face burns with memories of 40 years of asking her siblings for help. They would say, what's wrong with you? You can't read? I used to say, Lord, find me a school where I can learn that won't make fun of me for people that's on my level. One day, her mother sat her down. She said, baby, come here. I said, what? She said, don't feel bad because you can't read, okay? Your grandmother couldn't read. Your grandfather couldn't read. Sometimes, like, you inherit things. But because you can't read don't mean that you're not smart. She said, God, I'm making no mistakes. Ashley was always in a class for students with learning disabilities, but says she wasn't learning anything. I feel as though they just passed me, just get me out of school. I was just sitting there watching other kids. In the seventh grade, after one teacher told her, whether you learn to read or not, I still get paid, Ashley decided to drop out. To hide the fact she was illiterate, Ashley would practice the shape of letters of her name so she could copy them on money orders. She learned how to give her mother medicine based on the numbers and colors on the bottles. And she memorized Bible verses so no one at her church suspected. She limits her travel to a familiar route. I couldn't read the name of the bus, but I learned that the left-hand side of the street would take me downtown and the right-hand side of the street is going to bring me back home. Ashley couldn't help her son with schoolwork. She barely understood his report cards. I knew S stood for science, so I said, oh, okay, well, he got a B minus in science. And then I knew that R stood for reading, so I was saying, okay, you got an A in reading. As Ashley tells her story, her shoulders slump, as if she's weighed down by years of secrets and shame. She's seen those closest to her take advantage of her illiteracy, especially when it came to money. I would have to pay them, my family members, to come over to my house to do a money order. Sometimes I give them $25, sometimes I give them $30. A niece would fill out bank slips and withdraw money for her. And when you call the bank, they'll tell you how much has been taken out. So I was saying, I told my niece to take out $20. So why is the information saying that she took out $40? About eight years ago, someone on a bus told Ashley about Literacy Volunteers and Advocates, a nonprofit in D.C. Ashley's attended classes on and off since then. She initially tested at the kindergarten level. Now she's reading at the second grade level. She's also learned practical skills, like how to look for the word sodium on food labels and how to write out checks. And she can read some of the verses in her Bible. These small victories are monumental. When my gas bill comes to my house, I'm learning how to read where it say, pay by July the 17th. That makes me feel awesome. <laughs> Her life's dream is to write a soul food cookbook. Put me in a kitchen and, wow, I become brand new. <laughs> when I cook, there's nothing left over. <laughs> one plus one plus five. I think this would be a nine over ten. Ernest Robertson is Shirley Ashley's classmate in the adult education program. He struggled with reading all his life, but it's anything to do with math that really trips him up. David thinks he like it was another world out there. Well, you use numbers just about everywhere you go, really. Robertson, who's 58, recently started using a calculator. He pulls one out of his bag. This is my best friend. <laughs> I always have a calculator in the bag or be in my pockets. <laughs> Robertson dropped out of high school in Prince George's County, Maryland, because he didn't understand what was being taught. 
Since then, he struggled with math every day, from buying a metro ticket to figuring out how much he could buy at the grocery store. I try to add stuff up as I buy it, but that didn't work for me. He was in awe of people who could handle money easily. Especially bus drivers. They can, just, they can tell how much people need to pay, you know. I just wonder how to, how to do it. For 30 years, Robertson worked minimum wage jobs, washing cars and cleaning buildings. When car dealerships where he worked went out of business, Robertson started doing part-time yard work. He says no matter how many hours he worked, he only charged $20. It was because he didn't know how to make change. I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know how to do none of that. Robertson remembers vividly all the times he's been cheated. I think it's one price, then it's always something else. I think people can tell when you don't, you don't know how to handle money. They know how to get you. For years, he would pretend he was having trouble seeing. Then I said, oh, I left my glasses, and I can't see it. And I said, could you just do it for me this time? And some people are nice, and some people say, well, I can't do it for you. Robertson has the patient demeanor of someone who's used to waiting for help and the humility of someone who's used to having to ask for help. It was very difficult for me. It was difficult and plus it was embarrassing. You know, sometimes I kind of like tell the teller that you're overcharging. I get kind of quiet when things don't go right, you know. I just leave it over there and just walk out. Through his classes at Literacy Volunteers and Advocates, Robertson's math skills have improved, and he's now at the fourth grade level. He'd like to learn enough math to help his grandchildren with their homework, and he hopes it'll help him at his current job where he lays tile floors. Imagine the floor and putting the right price on. You need to know how much to charge him. They know you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> well, I like this guy. I'm going to save money with him. <laughs> Robertson says it would be heaven to be able to do a job from start to finish and figure out what he should be paid on his own. He and Shirley Ashley, like thousands of other adult learners, are slowly and painstakingly trying to fill in the gaps of their rudimentary schooling. For while it's been more than 40 years since they dropped out of school, the long shadow of their unfinished education still follows them every day. I'm Kavita Kadusa. You can hear all five parts of Kavitha's series next week on Morning Edition at 6.50 and 8.50 a.m. on WAMU story on today's debt show is about two kinds of debt, financial and environmental. Maryland's Frederick County is looking to build the largest public works project in its history, a $400 million waste to energy plant. Supporters say it will solve the local landfill space crunch and provide renewable energy. Critics, though, say this plant and the entire waste to energy philosophy need to be scrapped. Environment reporter Jonathan Wilson has more. Dave Jones manages the Wheelabrator Waste to Energy Plant in Baltimore, and he's taking me on a tour. Our first stop's going to be the elevator lobby up on the fifth floor. Jones explains that from there, we'll be able to look out over the refuse storage pit. 
As we arrive, he opens one of the windows, looking out onto the pit as a mechanical claw scoops trash out of the main pile and lifts it to one of the bins that sit above the burners. You know, this instant, you're looking at about three tons of garbage in that refuse crane grapple. It's going to really get fed in the, you know, what is, what is Unit 1's feed hopper. You know, out in that refuse storage pit right now, you're looking at about... 3,500 tons of garbage. The Baltimore plant is 30 years old, and while Wheelabrator says it's constantly updated, the company also says the facility it's planning for Frederick County will be even better. Frederick will simply be newer. It'll have newer technology. The boilers will be more efficient. The uh, air quality control equipment will be more sophisticated. Uh, the, the facility will have a higher online availability, and it will uh, generate more electricity per ton of solid waste processed. That's Mark Lyons, the project manager for Wheelabrator in Frederick County. He says the new plant will have a net electricity output of 45 megawatts, enough to power about 45,000 homes. This plant serves two benefits, safe, reliable, cost-effective solid waste disposal, and renewable energy generation. Lyons has been working on the project through years of controversy and local opposition. But as far as he's concerned, the referendum on the plant happened more than two years ago, during the last round of Frederick County elections. Numerous county commissioner candidates ran on a platform of anti-waste energy project. They were all defeated. Every county commissioner in Frederick who was elected or re-elected ran on a platform of supporting the waste energy project. So I think the voters in Frederick have spoken. Ellis Burris runs a printing shop in Brunswick, Maryland, a town that sits on the southern edge of the county right along the Potomac River. So how long have you been in Brunswick now? About 32 years. Burris ran for county commissioner a few years back. He opposed the Wheelabrator project, and he lost, just as Lyons points out. But Burris is still convinced the project can be stopped as more people dig into the details of the plan, especially the financial projections coming from the banks that will front the money for the $400-plus million plant. They rely on elected officials and citizens being uninvolved and uninformed. Their projections don't work out, and then the municipality or the county finds itself with a big debt. Ten years later, people look at their tax bill and say, What's this extra $200 all about? Well, it's too late then. You're already invested. For one thing, Burris worries that the revenue projections from the sale of power from the waste-to-energy plant don't account for what happens if the cost of electricity continues to go down. But there are environmental concerns about the plant as well. Willebrader is planning to pipe in wastewater from an adjacent treatment plant and use it for various cooling purposes. The water will then be piped into the Potomac River, eight miles away. Wheelabrator says the water will, in some ways, be cleaner than it was when it entered their plant. But Bruce Holstein, a member of the No Incinerator Alliance, isn't buying it. They're going to dump 400,000 gallons of contaminated water into the Potomac River every day for 30 years. And the state of Maryland is apoplectic about, oh, we have to clean up the bay. Well, a good starting point would be don't build the incinerator. And some arguments against the Frederick plant aren't simply local. Alan Hershkowitz is a scientist with the Natural Resources Defense Council. He says the entire waste-to-energy paradigm is flawed when applied at the municipal level. He says about 80 percent of the municipal waste stream should be recycled, not burned for energy. Food and yard waste, they're not suitable for combustion. They're full of moisture. Uh, they emit high levels of nitrogen when burned. You don't put food and yard waste in your, in your fireplace. They should be composted. Paper is recyclable. Paper should not be burned. Plastics are recyclable. 
Mike Marshner is Frederick County's former director of utilities and solid waste. He says waste to energy and recycling are not mutually exclusive. In fact, he says, it's just the opposite. Communities that utilize waste to energy for waste disposal typically have higher recycling rates than the national average or even some of the highest rates in the country. And that's because they're more focused on the proper disposal of the waste and the recovery of materials. Residents and environmentalists only have a few more weeks to debate these particulars, at least as they pertain to the Frederick County plant. Marylanders have until May 20th to weigh in on the plan. That's when the Department of the Environment's comment period ends. I'm Jonathan Wilson. This story came to us through WAMU's Public Insight Network, or PIN. To learn more, visit metroconnection.org slash PIN. And now, our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit West Lanham Hills, Maryland, and the Arboretum community of Northeast D.C. My name is Jean Mason. I'm in the Arboretum community, and I've been here about 40 years The Arboretum community sits right outside the gates of the National Arboretum off Bladensburg Road in New York Avenue in Northeast Washington. We love living next to the National Arboretum. My twin sister, Joan Black, matter of fact, refers herself as the official tour guide. We often have folks who come in, and even, even if they don't come visit different people in the neighborhood, if we just see people in the National Arboretum who are looking around and appear to be a little lost, we kind of give them little private tours and and, and show them different spots. Our neighborhood is very, very stable. We don't change a lot. Folks tend to uh, live here forever, and often when they go home, their children will live here or their grandchildren. I love that it hasn't changed. I like knowing my neighbors. I like being able to walk down the street and know everybody by name, and everyone speaks to you and smiles or or feels comfortable if they need help to ask. We are a very close-knit neighborhood. I'm Lee Rowe. I'm 51 years old, and I live in West Lanham Hills. It's bounded on the south by Route 450, and on, on the north by Ellen Road, and on the east by East West Highway, or Route 410. Well, West Lanham Hills is a... Uh, single house uh, residential neighborhood and the location of course was one of the prime reasons we came here but the other thing is that the neighbors look out for each other. Uh, We've had people living here for decades and we've been here for about uh, 16 years now. Most of the houses were built in 1940, 1941. We've had people who've lived here since that time and we have new people coming in so it's just a a sort of a neighborly neighborhood and uh, we enjoy living here. The biggest change is the influx of Hispanic families in West Lanham Hills. So uh, our newsletter is now in both English and Spanish in order to reach out to them. You know, they brought in uh, their own their own culture and some of them, some of them have their own businesses. And so we're trying to uh, do what we can to, to reach out to them from being neighbors as well as being part of the association. We heard from Gene Mason in D.C.'s Arboretum community and Lee Rowe in West Lanham Hills. If you'd like us to knock on your door so you can talk about your neighborhood, send an email to metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at wamumetro. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Up next, why a growing number of local residents are falling prey 
to mortgage scams. He was doing our signatures. He falsified those signatures. That and more is coming your way on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, And our next story on this week's debt show has to do with the cost of a huge construction project. The Silver Line. It's time to think about phase two of the Metro Rail extension to Dulles Airport. Friday the 19th is the deadline for contractors to submit their bids for the project. Joining us to talk about the next step is WAMU transportation reporter Martin DeCaro. Welcome back to the show, Martin. I'm glad to be here. All right. So as we mentioned, this is the second phase of the Silver Line, a multi-billion dollar project. I'm guessing you've got to be a pretty big name in the construction biz to even put in a bid, right? Yes. There are five pre-qualified construction consortiums that are going to be bidding on phase two of the Silver Line, and they are among the biggest names in the construction industry. And choosing the right contractor is so important here. So we have five teams. Bechtel is one of them, and Bechtel is building phase one of the Silver Line, and that's gone very well. They all have to submit their bids to the Metropolitan Washington Airports Authority, or MWA, which is in charge of the Silver Line by April 19th, and most importantly here, lowest bid wins. I thought it was about the quality of the company. Why would the lowest bid win if you want the best contractor for the job? This is where we get into the all-important issue of price. There are other ways to bid a mega project like this. And I asked the executive director of the Dulles Rail Project, Patrick Nowakowski, why low bid was chosen. One of the most obvious benefits is getting the the lowest possible cost for whoever's footing the bill. In this case, the taxpayers of uh, Fairfax County, Loudoun County, the toll road users. So for months, the five contracting teams have been meeting with Nowakowski's office to make sure their design plans meet the standards established in the airport's authority's design scheme. And now they're ready to submit their bids. So it's kind of a balance here between the quality of the designs, but also the fact that the bid is low. Well, that's right. And that is why some believe the airport's authority is inviting some trouble. The quality of any one contractor's design will not give it an advantage over a competitor who might have an inferior design. Lowest bid wins, period. Brian Petruska is the attorney for the Laborers International Union of North America, which supplied workers in construction of Phase 1. He says the low-bid process opens the door for price escalation down the road, which the airport's authority will wind up paying for. And maybe those costs are foreseeable, but they're not in the actual contract. So that means the contractor may know there's foreseeable additional costs that will go in eventually. On bid day, you don't include those. But how can a contractor escalate the cost of a project? Two words. Change orders. Now, a contractor can request a change in the construction plans to build something differently, and on large projects, change orders are very, very common. There are many reasons why a change order can be requested. Many are legit. And Patrick Nowakowski says his office has protections in place to prevent unnecessary change orders from driving up the Silver Line's price. I worry about change orders from the day I signed the contract to the day I end it. It's not a function of the low bid procedure. It's a function of how well were the contract documents written, how well do you manage the project from the day you start to the day you finish. Virginia Transportation Secretary Sean Connaughton says it'll be up to MWA to hold the contractor to the terms of the contract. Why price is so important here is that any overages, any price escalation is passed almost directly on to the toll road users. 
It sounds like these big construction firms can have a lot of power over the final price tag for a project that is going to affect so many local residents. You mentioned Bechtel, but can you tell us more about the companies that are bidding on Phase 2 of the Silver Line? That's right. We already mentioned Bechtel, which built Phase 1, is building Phase 1. Among the other firms that have built projects in Northern Virginia, some have mixed records when it comes to staying on budget. Now, well, let's just take a look at contracts awarded by the Virginia Department of Transportation over the past 10 years. 61 large highway contracts over $20 million each. 62% went over budget. A smaller percentage were at least 5% over budget. Now, out of all those over budget contracts, more than a third involved contractors or subsidiaries that are bidding on the Silver Line second phase. Clark Construction, Archer Western, and Skanska USA. Um, So should we be worried then if one of those contractors wins phase two? Well, we started off this conversation talking about how important it is to get the right contractor on the job. But to answer your question over whether we should be worried, not necessarily. Here's Patrick Dean, the president of the Associated Builders and Contractors of Virginia, which represents the interests of construction firms. You know, a newspaper or a radio show or anybody can spot off and say, hey, there was a problem on a job, and they name the contractor or the subcontractor. Typically, they don't get into the details because that news is old by the time anything's ever figured out on why something occurred to the negative. So on this project, phase two of the Silver Line, what happens after the bids are submitted? Well, the airport's authority will announce the winning bidder in May. Then preliminary work will begin later this year. Completion date for phase two of the Silver Line to Dulles is 2018. Well, Martin DeCaro, thank you for coming in and bringing us up to speed. Thanks, Rebecca. Anytime. If you'd like to sound off on the Silver Line or on any other transportation story, we would love to hear from you. Our email address is metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. We turn now from how Washingtonians move around to where they live. We've heard a lot over the past few months about our local housing market picking up. But actually, many homeowners are still struggling with debt. And increasingly, their desperation is making them a ready target for scam artists. Jacob Fenston has the story. Luis and Margarita Garcia moved to Montgomery County in 1999. Yes, we are um, a family of immigrants that came from El Salvador. At first, they lived crammed into a single bedroom. My children, my husband, and me. After six months, they worked their way up to a basement apartment, then a larger apartment above ground, then just five years after coming to the United States. We had the opportunity to have um, the American dream, to have our our own house. I will say, like, it was a pretty, pretty amazing feeling, like, one of your goals was done. We came from nothing, from nothing, and then your house is it's amazing. That was 2004. When the recession hit, they were in the absolute wrong lines of work. Margarita cleans houses, and Luis is a heating and cooling technician. His company cut his hours. And for me, too, I'm start losing some of my jobs. Suddenly, between the two of them, combined, they had the income of one part-time job. I don't know how to say that, that the sentences. Um, we left behind on the payments. 
We were behind. Yeah. We were behind on the on the payments. We cannot afford it in in that time. But they were determined not to lose the house. Margarita researched programs to help homeowners, and she applied for a loan modification to lower their payments. I cannot tell you how many times we apply for a modification. At one point, they found a man who promised to help. A realtor. It was five hundred dollars, and he made them pay up front. He did help them with the paperwork, but he also lied to them. We found that he was doing our signatures. He falsified those signatures. He botched their application, and he made them pay for services that nonprofit, government-backed groups provide for free. Buenas tardes, oyentes y amigos. Aquí con ustedes de nuevo Manuel Ochoa. Manuel Ochoa moonlights as a radio host at a station in Wheaton, Maryland. He does a weekly show about housing and credit called Consejos Financieros. Bienvenidos a nuestro programa de hoy sobre. Ochoa's real job is at the Latino Economic Development Center, a nonprofit that offers free housing counseling. He says the majority of his clients have already been scammed by the time they find their way into his office. That's really the main reason why we decided to go ahead and have a radio show is to combat. The scamming and the misinformation that was taking place. Ochoa's group worked with the Garcias, who finally, after four years, were granted a loan modification late last year. Montgomery County, where the Garcias live, is among the jurisdictions with the highest foreclosure rates in Maryland, making it a target for scammers. They're also targeting Prince George's County, ground zero in the local foreclosure crisis. I got the number off the TV. I, I had a commercial on TV. Stanley Young, who drives a delivery truck for a living, got behind on his payments on his Prince George's house in 2008. He was in a pinch and didn't know where to turn. And I called the number, and the guy was asking me for my routing number to my checking account. And so I said, "But, but why do you need my routing number to my checking account?" Eventually, he saw an ad for a free and legitimate housing counselor who helped him work with the bank. Just this month, he got the news. He was okayed for a loan modification, extending the loan but bringing down his payments. I'm back on track. That's what I needed. I needed a, a fresh start. He's one of the fortunate ones. In his zip code in Prince George's, one in five homeowners has gotten a foreclosure notice in just the past year or so. It's just a bubble hit this county very hard. Mary Hunter directs the counseling program at the housing nonprofit Hip Services in Hyattsville. In the past few months, foreclosures in Maryland have spiked after two years of much lower rates. Hunter says that's in part because of a law passed in Maryland in 2010 requiring banks offer in-person mediation to homeowners before foreclosing. That year, we saw this sort of what we was really an unofficial moratorium gave us a chance to really work with the banks and you know under a less pressure of the foreclosure sale. Borrowers like Stanley. Young and Luis and Margarita Garcia were able to use that unofficial moratorium to get help and work out a solution with their lenders to keep their houses. But housing counselors worry there are many more homeowners who aren't doing that. Instead, they're getting farther and farther behind, meaning that with each passing month, the prospect of holding onto their homes becomes more remote. I'm Jacob Fenston. So as that April 15th tax filing deadline looms large, on today's show, we've been talking all about debt. And we've mainly been talking about it in the financial sense. But the thing is, some of the debts we carry aren't about money at all. And a longtime Washingtonian who knows that fact all too well 
All right, so can you start off by showing me what we have here? Well, I mean, I have tons of pictures. Is Cliff Brody. These are amongst the thousands of pictures here, but you see a uh, young Lieutenant Brody. Is that you? That's me. Oh, my gosh. And people said, and I didn't realize it then, that I looked very much like Bobby Kennedy. I was going to say... It's an amazing resemblance. Yes. From 1967 to 1968, the young Lieutenant Brody was serving with the 89th Military Police Unit in the U.S. Army in Vietnam. This picture, I'm carrying a a sack of food supplements uh, with a young man named Joe Blakely. Joe was my sergeant, skinny old Joe or skinny young Joe, a very, very, very slight guy. If he turned sideways... You know, he would disappear. Both Cliff and skinny old Joe were in their 20s. Cliff hailed from New York and Joe from Philadelphia. Uh, Joe was the nephew of the mayor of Philadelphia, Frank Rizzo. And he was very proud of Uncle Frank. Uncle Frank was a little corrupt, but what can you say? When Cliff and Joe met in Vietnam, they became fast friends. We drove around together to villages in what must have been the world's first army jeep. It was so old and broken down. The guys were driving around in that same jeep one day in 1968 when Joe did something, Cliff says. That saved my sense of being, for which uh, I'm incredibly indebted to him. The May Offensive, Phase 2 of the Tet Offensive, had begun. And Cliff and Joe were running a convoy of about two dozen U.S. Army trucks to Saigon. Their jeep was in front, a military police vehicle was in back. And Cliff remembers it was an absolutely sweltering day. You know, it's like 500 degrees outside. We're bedecked with all of this military gear, the steel helmet and everything. So they were driving, and Cliff and Joe stopped at this one traffic light in the dusty, crowded city. And at that point, Cliff looked in his rearview mirror at the truck behind him, and he saw something kind of unexpected. This person reaching up under the two-and-a-half-ton truck, and he's grabbing something. So I grabbed my rifle, my carbine, and Joe's looking at me, and I said, Joe, someone's taking something from that truck. That something, Cliff quickly realized, was a U.S. Army toolkit. So without even thinking, he leapt out of the Jeep and raced off to catch the presumed thief who had dashed across the road. And then into a rice paddy, he's got the tools from the armor truck. Now, our young Lieutenant Brody at this point was angry. It had been more than half a year since he'd been serving in the war. A war, to be frank, uh, he didn't really approve of or even understand. And my temper wasn't building up. My frustration was. So that's when Cliff did something he'll never forget. He raised his rifle. And I put a bullet in the chamber. And just as he was about to pull the trigger... Joe comes flying over. Grabs the gun. Pulls it down by the barrel. And says to Lieutenant Brody... Sir, sir, he says. It's just tools. He's just a kid. I remember the voice. It's just a kid. And that, Cliff says, is when reality set in. If I had shot the boy. I would have never been happy with myself, never. I would have run from the memory like I've run from a lot of other memories, but it would find its way to the surface. Hence his eternal indebtedness to one Sergeant Joe Blakely. Joe was my conscience, obviously, at that moment. Uh, People do things so we're all told in the heat of war, and I certainly saw the evidence of that while I was in Vietnam. We all do things we regret. 
that would have been a big one. After the war, Cliff Brody served in the Foreign Service and lost touch with Joe Blakely. Cliff's done a little research, though, and it seems skinny old Joe died in 1988. What would you say to Joe right now if you were able to listen? Joe, I don't think you have any idea of how much your being there at that time made me much more able to live with who I am. Thank you. Cliff has been pretty big on thank yous ever since that fateful day in May 68, and he believes we all should be. I think it's useful from time to time to look back on events in your life and answer the question, who has helped me become a better person? And then we should say, well, how do we pay those people back? In my opinion, you don't. There's no way to pay those people back. Some of them have moved on. Some of them have died. So the payback is by doing the same thing for someone else. Do you have someone to whom you are forever indebted? We'd love to hear your story. Send an email to metro at wamu.org. That's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Kavitha Cardoza, Jacob Fenston, Emily Berman, Martin DeCaro, and Jonathan Wilson. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Robbie Feinberg. Lauren Landau, Robbie Feinberg, and John Hines produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. All the music we use is listed on our website. That's metroconnection.org. Just click on a story, and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on metroconnection.org, you can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing online anytime. Time. You can also find us on iTunes and Stitcher. We hope you can join us next week when we'll bring you a show we're calling Law and Order. We'll learn how Maryland's new environmental laws could affect residents and businesses. We'll visit Georgetown Law and celebrate a big anniversary with the Georgetown Gilbert and Sullivan Society. And we'll head to the kinship community of Sandy Spring, where residents have been fighting for recognition of a road their families have used for generations. All they got to do is give us what we deserve and what we have paid for all these years, over 100 years. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.